Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Mathematics, a podcast in the New Books Network. I'm Corey Brunson, a host of the channel. Today, I had the pleasure for you to interview Davide Kripa about his new book, The Impossibility of Squaring the Circle in the 17th Century, a debate among Gregory, Huygens, and Leibniz. This book is a deep dive into a debate over classic problems of ancient Greek geometry that played out among some of the most consequential mathematicians of the 17th century well before the problems were resolved more than two centuries later. There's a lot of material in Davide's book that we don't touch upon in this interview, so I urge listeners to find themselves a copy if you're curious to learn more. With that, let's go to my interview with Davide Kripa. All right, Davide Kripa, welcome to the Newborgs Network Mathematics Channel. Thank you very much for this invitation. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, Could you begin by telling us a bit about who you are, your current affiliations, and some of your previous work? Um, yes, I am um, currently a postdoctoral researcher at the Academy of Sciences in Prague, the Institute of Philosophy. And I am, um, say, principal investigator of a project on the history of mathematics in the Czech lands, uh, late 18th century, beginning of the 19th century. Before, I've always or mostly worked on the history of early modern mathematics, that is the 17th 17th century. Uh, This was also the topic of my dissertation that I did in Paris and of my book. Yes, it's pretty much that. And that's right. I came across your book originally through looking up your dissertation, um, which was itself, at least the first part of it that I read, a very interesting read. Um, And so... Since this book built on your dissertation, could you say a bit about how you came to study impossibility results during this period and how that led to your thesis work? Uh, Yes. Um, Well, the idea, so my idea, I became interested in the impossibility results related to the classical problems of antiquity. So um, the trisection of the angle, the duplication of the cube and the squaring of the circle. Uh, because these are very simple problems um, that hide somehow surprising mathematical results because the content of this problem is elementary so everyone can understand or with a little background at least what it means to solve to square the circle or trisect the angle and so on and so on um but at, at, at the same time, there th- th- there is this fact about about their impossibility, which is not uh, um, which is which is not a simple result to be to be proven, uh, because it requires higher mathematics, it requires algebra, and so on. So I was puzzled by the fact that these are simple problems that we think we can solve, 
and in fact we cannot. And at the same time, I was puzzled because they are uh, uh, because their impossibility involves um, higher mathematical means. So they are also a didactical, a nice didactical. Not, they are nice didactical examples to illustrate, for example, higher algebra and so on. And then, uh, so why why did I decide to study? Why I decided to study them in the 17th century? Well, this is also um, something that I could say it's new because the according to common historiography, and this is correct. In fact, the uh, rigorous impossibility proofs occurred in the 19th century. <laughs> But in fact, there is um, there are several examples of discussions about impossibility that started in uh, in the 17th century. So since there were not many studies, I decided to to look at the problem at that time. So I wonder what did they wanted to prove when they proved an impossibility result? Is it the same kind of proofs that we have today or in the 19th century? Or not. So I think that in, in general the topic of impossibility is fascinating and especially in mathematics. I very much agree, and all the more so having read your book. Um, now, in not just the 17th century, but you zoom in on a 10-year period from 1667 to 1676. Could you describe what was happening during this period? Yes, for my for my book and uh, uh, in part for my dissertation, I discussed uh, mm -hmm. a shorter period because I focused on a particular episode that regards a particular kind of impossibility result. It is the impossibility of squaring the circle using not only a ruler and compass but algebraic method. And in particular, I discuss the work of James Gregory. So, um, James Gregory wrote this book in 1667, published this book in 1667, and it's called uh, The True Quasar of the Circle and the Hyperbola. I'm translating the, the late title, the book is in Latin. And uh, this book is um, impressive because it's probably the first book whose main goal, main topic is to prove that you cannot solve the old problem of the quadrature of the circle by certain means. And at the same time, this book stirred a certain, so raised a certain um, controversy uh, among mathematicians and influenced uh, other mathematicians. In particular, it influenced the work of the better known, I mean, outside, better known outside the circle of historians of mathematics, that is a better known character, that is uh, Leibniz. And we'll get into the controversy that uh, Gregory's work uh, led to and the influence it had on Leibniz in the uh, main section of the interview. Let me pause for a moment to ask you to define some of the terms you use in your text that um, non-historiographic uh, mathematicians might not be familiar with. Um, the quadrature problems, for example, and the central conic sections. Mm -hmm. Well, um, so the quadrature problem, it refers to a very 
It refers to a simple geometrical problem. That is, you have a figure that is not a square, so a plane, a plane figure, and you want to and you want to construct a square that has exactly the same area. Well, this is very easy if the given figure is a polygon, for example. So that's that, that there is a way that you could explain how to dissect polygons and build rectangles or squares that have equal area. The problem becomes a lot more difficult if the figure is bounded by curves. So if it is, for example, a segment of parabola or an ellipse or even a circle. So that's um, the idea of quadrature. So to square the circle means to construct a square or any polygon that has an equal surface, equal surface to a given uh, circle. Then I forgot the other. I forgot the other point. Sorry, that's the central conic sections. We think of the squaring of the circle as this classic problem, but in fact, it was a special case of a much broader class of problems. Yeah, that's true. That's one of the. I say one of the. Um, important contribution of Gregory was that he did not only consider the circle but he also considered the ellipse and the hyperbola and so ellipse, circle and hyperbola have this property, geometrical property that was already studied by Apollonius that they have a center um, in the geometric plane so the interest of Gregory is that he devised a method to treat the three conic sections mm. altogether. Whereas, so we know that there is another conic section that is a parabola, but this um, was not a problem because so sections of a parabola can be squared uh, by a method that was devised by Archimedes. So it was well known at that time. The problem was to solve was to solve the same quadrature problem for the other conic sections. So we should feel in some sense indebted to Archimedes for solving the first quadrature of a conic section. I would say yes. Uh, well, you could also, now I'm making a sort of um, digression. You could also square the so-called loons uh, that is, these are particular sections, sectors of the circle. Now, it would be easy to find a figure and use the figure to explain what these are. But so these are sectors of circle that can be squared. By the way, to be, but when I say can squared, I mean that you can construct a square with equal area using. Um, ruler and compass. Now, if I can continue the digression, the use of the ruler and compass was somehow a sort of standard or canon of ancient geometry. That is, to solve the problem correctly or exactly was to solve it by using the ruler and the compass. Well, the question that Gregory asked is more general. That is, not only uh, squaring the conic sections by ruler and compass, but also using algebraic curves. So 
he proved that in fact you cannot, or he allegedly proved that you cannot square the central conic sections by ruler and compass and by any algebraic curves. That's it. Now, naturally, um, our discussion lends itself to pictures, and your book is rich with geometric figures, which unfortunately we can't convey in their full glory to the listeners. Could you describe how you produced these figures, uh, in particular, how you adapted them from the source text? Yes, I used uh, I used a free software. It's called the GeoGebra, and uh, that allows you to make construct to make geometrical constructions in in the plane, so in elementary geometry. And I either either copy the original when they are available or reconstruct them starting from from the text because for example Gregory's book uh, does not have the figures that I needed at least because they were apparently they were um, on a separable sheet or on a separa separable separable um, how do you say it iron maybe not iron but a metal plate so they probably got lost from the editions that I that I could consult. So I had to redo them using GeoGebra. And in in an email exchange, you described to me a sort of unfolding that you sometimes had to do of these figures due to the density with which they were originally produced. What was the reason for that? Yes, that's true because often they put a lot. Early modern authors put a lot of information on one and the same figure. Uh, Especially not so much uh, Gregory, but Leibniz. So Leibniz, the figures used by Leibniz in this treatise that he prepared for publication, but was never published anyway. The, the figures are contain a lot of information and are very intricate. Uh, that's maybe due to reasons of uh, economy in relation to publication. So since printing a figure was difficult, it was much. Uh, easier and uh, it was much simpler to use a single figure instead of make more instead of making more of them i suppose so the main part of your book is divided between chapters two and three uh chapter two recounts the controversy that arose from this publication you mentioned early um, james gregory's true quadrature of the circle and hyperbola which we'll refer to as vch controversy play out and who were the major players uh, right the controversy is a funny story that i tried to to uh, to tell to count recount in the book um so of course the major player the major player is the holder himself james gregory um who was very young when he finished uh, the book when he printed the book in 1667, he was 20-something, um, then we can check later the, the current age. And he decided to submit the book to the opinion of the more expert and qualified, according to him, uh, readers. Among them, there is, there is uh, Christian Huygens. So Christian Huygens was an authority in... Um, Mathematics, but especially in the problem of squaring the circle, because he had himself written a book about uh, 15, 13 years before, years before. So he sent, Gregory sent the book 
one or a copy of the book to Huygens uh, with a letter, an accompanied letter, in which he asked for the master's opinion, but he did not receive any answer in return. Instead, instead Huygens discussed the book um, during a session of the French Academy of Sciences with his colleagues and moved a number, moved a number of objections to its content. This discussion was then uh, published, and Gregory could read only the, the 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 published paper, which was a letter in the Journal des Savants. So, um, what Eugens objected was, on one hand, he made objection to Gregory's impossibility, which is the main topic of my book. On the other, he also objected to um, Gregory's um, originality because he claimed that Gregory had some results regarding a method to approximate the area of the circle and the method to approximate the area of the hyperbola. Uh, so methods that Huygens had apparently already known, either in his, uh, had already explained either in his works or uh, orally. Um, so Gregory took this very took this um, criticism very seriously, and he took it as an accusation of plagiarism. Subsequently, he published a booklet, a small booklet, in the summer fall of 1668, so one year after his first book. So he published this book, this booklet, in which he attacked. Um, even without making any names, he attacked the older, let's say, older representative of the establishment, the scientific establishment, and um, it was quite clear that he was referring also to Huygens, or Huygens took it very personally. But then uh, mm, the problem is that it was not a mere controversy between uh, Gregory and Huygens. This controversy has also a... Um, institutional level, because both Gregory and Huygens were members of the Royal Society. Uh, Huygens was not living in, in, uh, in England, but he was a foreign member. And the problem of controversy was a seri serious issues for the society. That's why a number of people that, were, that belonged to or related around the Royal Society were involved. So the secretary, Harry Holdenburg, who mm, was not a mathematician himself and had to use the expertise of other mathematicians, for example, John Wallace. And another person that was involved was, for example, uh, as um, Robert, Robert Moray was a sort of patron of Gregory and uh, John Collins, a sort of intelligencer at that time. So there was a number of, let's say, a sort of middlemen who were involved and um, did not openly took the side for one or the other, um, let's say, adversaries, but tried to, um, how can I say, they tried to uh, find sort of compromise or make peace in order to extinguish this controversy which happened uh, a few months later. But as I explained also in the book, it was more of a political decision 
rather than a scientific one. That is, they decided that they could not, uh, that they could not let the two, uh, the two men, Gregory and Huygens, use um, the Journal des Savants and the transactions of the of the Royal Society as their own, as a places where to. Mm, were to write accusations to one another, they decided that their journals should not be used as a place to to stir the controversies. So, uh, but but they did not uh, reach a a conclusion. So the matter the matter in dispute was not solved in any way. So this out as a very um, somewhat antagonistic controversy and didn't really reach a satisfactory resolution at the time. Um, so could we zoom in a bit on Gregory's original treatise, VCHQ, and the details he provided in later manuscripts um, to give us an idea of what it is he accomplished? He proposed um, what, uh, what you describe as a second kind of analysis that allowed him access to what he described as an untouched kind of proportion and geometry. What was his method in a rough outline? So in a sense, it's very simple because Gregory's relied on the classics, that is on Archimedes. And we more or less know what, um, how Archimedes tackled the problem of squaring the circle, or, or which is, equivalent um, measuring the or rectifying the circumference. That is, Archimedes uh, constructed a succession um, a sequence of inscribed and circumscribed polygons to, uh, to the circle. Uh, Gregory's starting point was a geometrical construction, but then he used algebra to Let's say, in no, a better way to explain this, he extrapolated from this geometrical model an infinite double sequence using algebra. That is, he considered the areas of the polygons and he found out a recursive relation between these areas, of both inscribed and circumscribed. And he came up with an infinite sequence that could be defined uh, starting from the first inscribed and the first inscribed polygon, for example, a triangle and a quadrilateral, could be defined uh, recursively. Now, the Gregory's idea was that to find the area of the circular sector, or by, by simplicity, to find the area of, a square, uh, of, an, of the circle, we have to calculate to find the limit of the sequence. This is also pretty intuitive if you think that the polygons, uh, as far as uh, the more polygons you construct, the better you approximate the area of the circle. Right. You now, this is an intuitive idea, you but it really was um, this, uh, what I call very infinite attentive. To um, this relationship between this equation between the mm, area that to, was circumscribed and the inscribed. Let's say it was very attentive to prove uh, several results that? regarding the convergence of this sequence. So the first twist was to uh, understand 
what was classically understood as a geometrical problem was to understand this geometrical problem as an algebraic problem, a problem that asks to calculate the limit of a certain sequence. And the second twist, or the second turning point, was that was to prove that you cannot compute this limit, starting from the inscribed sequence polygons, for the case of the circle, or for the case of a sector of an hyperbola. So instead of calculating the limit, Gregory decided to prove that you cannot compute the limit from starting from the areas of the polygons. So the, the consequence is that the area or the, the surface of the circle of an hyperbola is a quantity that cannot be computed uh, starting from the areas of the polygons. That is, it cannot be computed, computed from the radius of the circle and the chord, for example. So it's a new kind of quantity. And Gregory invokes here what you describe as a tacit assumption, uh, which was then immediately challenged by Huygens and other commenters. What was this assumption in, in a little bit of detail? So if I remember well, but maybe you can tell me if it's what you if it if it's what you are thinking about. If I remember well, by tacit assumption, I refer to the fact that he assumed that his method to compute the limit of the circle, of the circle was a truly general method. Uh, that is, that you cannot compute the limit of the circle using another method, or if you do, this method is eventually reducible to the method that Gregory gave. And this was one of the main uh, objections raised by Huygens. Huygens said, yes, okay, you have a nice method. And assume uh, Huygens was saying, let's agree that your proof, your impossibility proof is correct, but then how can I be sure that if I use Another method, maybe I can find the area of the circle. So this was Huygens' objections. That is, there is an assumption that is tacit, an assumption of generality that Gregory, in the letters, then tried to make explicit, but did not uh, manage to. And so following this exchange among Gregory, Huygens, Wallace, and others, eventually we arrive at your third chapter, which is on Leibniz's approach to the quadrature question. Um, this is the body of chapter three, and um, his manuscript was, uh, we'll refer, we'll, was called the Arithmetic Quadrature, and we'll refer to it as DQA. Um, what were his main results in this treatment? Uh, Leibniz's main results, um, so where I would say, there are two main results. One is um, oh, let me phrase it correctly. So one result that we all would say that became very famous is the so-called series four pi over four. That is pi over four. It's uh, it, it's it's um, it's the area of a quarter of a circle and. Uh, Leibniz proved that this is equal to an infinite series of rational numbers. And uh, 
Another main result regards the way in which he arrived to this, uh, to this important result, that is, he used a method of transmutation, that is a method that allows him to find the quadrature of the square. It was a general method of quadratures. And then regarding more closely the topic of my book, uh, Leibniz gave an impossibility proof for the impossibility of the so-called indefinite quadrature of the circle and indefinite quadrature of the hyperbola that we can consider a refinement or a more correct or improved version with respect to Gregory's um, impossibility results. Could you take a moment, uh, Davide, to distinguish between uh, the two types of results that um, Leibniz uh, distinguished in his in uh, DQA? Yeah, this is um, this is very important because it's at the core of Leibniz's contribution to this to this story. That is, there is a traditional problem, the one that I've been talking about before. Traditional problems were in the circle, that is, you have the whole circle, or you have half of the circle, or one quarter, a section of the whole circle, and you are asked to find its area, or in Greek, according to the Greek uh, terminology or style, to construct a square with equal area. So this is what Leibniz would call particular quadrature of, of any, any figure, or this is more or less what Gregory and Huygens would call the definite quadrature of the circle. Uh, uh, but then there is, and during the 17th century, the problem started to be divided, and Leibniz was one of the main actors in this division. There is another quadrature problem, that is the problem of finding a general formula for quadratures, that is the problem of squaring an arbitrary sector of a given figure, for example, an arbitrary sector of the circle. Um, now, what did this mean for Leibniz? It means to find uh, the relation between um, to find the relation between, in the case of the circle, the radius and the tangent, or the radius of the, or the sine. So Leibniz uh, made made clearly this distinction between the problem of computing a certain area and the problem of studying a certain function, for example, a trigonometric function. And this is the indefinite part of the circle. Now, similarly to Gregory's approach, you break Leibniz's arithmetical quadrature into two steps, a geometrical reduction followed by an analytical solution. Could you roughly outline these steps? Uh, right, right, yes. Um, yes, I think that Leibniz has a similar strategy insofar as, so he did not, Leibniz did not treat the quadrature of the circle and the hyperbola altogether as Gregory did. So from this point of view, Leibniz's method is less brilliant than Gregory, if I can say that. <laughs> but he treated the cases separately. Now, um, what was the major problem that Leibniz saw when trying to square the circle? So 
he wanted to be able to read he wanted um yes he wanted to be able to apply to the case of the circle a method that was used by uh, english mathematicians or the mathematicians who were in english for example mercator and brunker that is uh, that would be applied for the hyperbola that is um, starting from the equation of a curve for example the hyperbola to uh, uh, to apply a method of long division and therefore to transform it into an infinite series and then solve the quadrature for the series because it's easier. But you cannot do this for the circle because the circle, uh, the equation of a circle or the equation of half circle, for example, involves a square root. So Leibniz did not apparently or try to, but did not really use the, use uh, Newton's binomial theorem, so he could not immediately transform this square root, this expression containing a square root, into an infinite series. Therefore, he tried to find uh, a another another figure or another curve uh, that could yield a quadrature somehow equivalent to that of the circle, or in a in a rational in a rational ratio, for example. And then, and then work on the second on the second figure, and so he applied this geometrical method to do this, so to reduce the squaring of a circle of a circle or sector to the squaring of um, of another figure bounded by a curve that can be treated using the known uh, symbolic algorithm. It's the so-called uh, anonymous curve. Uh, because Leibniz did not give a name uh, to it, and so the geometrical the geometrical phase of Leibniz's solution consisted in the reduction of the squaring of a circle or sector to the squaring of this of this of the to, to the squaring of a figure included by this curve, and the analytic or algebraic stage or phase consists in applying known known algorithm to uh, to handle the area under the new curve. So in a nutshell, it's that. Very nice. Now, Leibniz didn't cite Gregory's VCHQ or the exchanges with Huygens, but you show in the book that he was, in fact, very familiar with these exchanges and with uh, Gregory's work. How did you determine this? And in your assessment, how did Gregory's work influence Leibniz? Yes, this was made possible because we have a number of manuscripts uh, nowadays available or available since the last uh, couple of years or so. And this manus the, this, we have a number of Leibniz manuscripts uh, available. And uh, these manuscripts were written by Leibniz during his stay in Paris, so while he was in arithmetical quadrature of the circle. And in these manuscripts, we see that he's commenting Gregory, and in particular, he's commenting Gregory's impossibility result. So these manuscripts have been published in 2012 uh, by Sigmund Probst and Uwe Meyer. And here we can see that Leibniz was particularly interested in uh, Gregory's results around 17... Uh, Sorry, 1676. Let's remember that the book, the 
arithmetical quadrature of the circle was completed uh, by around by September 76. So he became interested in this very late. So my conjecture is that uh, Leibniz was corresponding with uh, uh, authors, uh, was corresponding with people in, in Britain. In particular, it was corresponding with Haldenburg, and uh, Leibniz was sending Haldenburg information about his own work on the quarter of the circle. So when Haldenburg who was uh, at the Royal Society, when Haldenburg received Leibniz's letters, uh, he replied by quoting by quoting Gregory, and by saying that Gregory had an impossibility result, and so on and so on. And probably Leibniz was, Leibniz might, maybe not probably, but Leibniz might have been curious to know more about Gregory's result after um, reading Haldenburg, um, uh, Haldenburg's um, objections, let's say. Another, um, that's why he came to Gregory so late in 76. Although, um, Leibniz was also very intimate and friend to Huygens. And Huygens, as I recall, was one of the main uh, actors in the controversy. So it's certain that Huygens gave Leibniz all the material about this controversy. Probably they also discussed uh, privately. So we know that he came interested in Gregory through Huygens and probably through the English, through English. That one, the English wanted to. So there's um, there's also an issue of national pride. So they wanted probably to. How can I say in English? They wanted to. Um, to defend their own uh, products. So Stephen against Leibniz's claim or to. Uh, they they took a stance in favor of Gregory, and the other um, the other question that you asked me was perhaps why Leibniz did not uh, did not add uh, any reference to Gregory in the book. So my idea is that uh, he did actually in a in one of the versions one of the drafts of this book he did. But he erased this reference in the what was supposed to be the final version. And this was a usual strategy. That is, Leibniz decided to eliminate uh, digressions, historical digressions, or any kind of digressions from the final version. And probably, probably he decided to eliminate the digression on Gregory from the final version and leave instead only his own impossibility result. So it, this was probably an editorial decision. So staying with this um, comparison or relationship between ECHQ um, Gregory and Leibniz thought differently about how fit into traditional mathematics. Um, from my reading, Gregory viewed his work as having added uh, quote, another operation to arithmetic and another kind of geometry. Like into the use of third numbers, by which um, we mean roots. In contrast, Leibniz's use of infinite series as a, quote, subsidiary analysis, and considered it inferior to a traditional geometric group. Um, in parallel, 
But furthermore, Gregory seemed to be comfortable concluding that the quadrature of the central conic section, so the squaring of the ellipse circle and the hyperbola, possible using the Swedish compass, whereas Leibniz held out hope that his solutions would lead to classical construction. Why did they have such different perspectives? And how did they compare the how did theirs compare to the views of other mathematicians at the time? Mm, yes, this is an interesting and difficult question. But uh, yes, it's very interesting. Um, so there is, I think, at the root of Leibniz and Gregory's distinct, uh, let's say, meta-mathematical or meta-theoretical approach to the problem, a different appraisal of the, uh, so a different, uh, I can say, legacy of the cardiometry. So because we haven't talked about it a lot today, but the current geometry is somehow what the ghost in the background of all this story. Mm. Uh, that is, in a sense, that it was what determined what was to be considered exact uh, geometrical or mathematical procedure. Mm. So, um, for uh, so for for uh, Gregory and Leibniz, I think thought differently um, about how their techniques fit into the tradition uh, of mathematics. As you said, Gregory view his work as having. Uh, as heading another operation to arithmetic and another kind of relation to geometry, whereas uh, not so. Let me now let me phrase it differently. Maybe we can delay this later. So I would say like that. So um, there is certainly a similarity. That is, the similarity is this that. The card geometry was the background for both Gregory and uh, and Leibniz. In both cases, the problem was a problem of completeness. Can all geometrical quantities be treated with the algebra that Descartes has given us? So Le Gregory says no, and Leibniz says no as well. So they both agree on this, and the impossibility proof is uh, regarded precisely at this point. Unlike, for example, Huygens, because Huygens was convinced that um, Huygens was convinced that in the end you might be able to square the circle without going out from the bounds of Cartesian geometry. Uh, so what I was saying was that Gregory's impossibility results was a way to, if as, as a sort of uh, methodological or meta-theoretical implication, that is, it was a way to express the fact that the bounds of Cartesian geometry are too, are too limited in order to treat all geometrical problems or all geometrical quantities. Uh, now, this issue was precisely the issue that uh, Huygens wanted Leibniz to work on. 
to the point that when um, when Leibniz found his own uh, arithmetical quadrature of the circle, that is this nice series for pi over four, Huygens was even convinced that this was a step a step in the direction that he was hoping to go. That this was a step in the direction to finding a algebraic or third or, or algebraic or rational uh, value for the area of the circle. Leibniz was probably partially convinced by Huygens in the beginning, but then he likely changed his mind. Now, this, uh, this is not an issue that I discussed at length in the book, that is what happens after the quadratura arithmetica, but probably Leibniz uh, was not convinced that uh, the area of the circle could be found using Cartesian technique. So this is one point. The other point that I wanted to stress was that um, somehow uh, there is this idea for Gregory uh, that the Cartesian restriction of geometry to what can be expressed algebraically is um, artificial. So for Gregory, and he says it's explicitly what counts is the simplest method, and it doesn't matter how you solve the problem, provided it is in the simplest way. And uh, whereas I would say that Leibniz was more um, attentive to the Cartesian methodological idea that you have to restrict your means to solve problems to the ones that are more geometric, to the, the ones that are geometrical, and you have to define geometricity in a consistent way. So this was not a an issue for Gregory, but it was not an issue either for several other British mathematicians. For example, Wallace did not consider this issue either. So I don't know if I answered completely. No, that's very helpful. So there's. It's just, there's this disagreement, not just restricted to Gregory and Leibniz over what constitutes a, a sort of legitimate solution to one of these problems, whether it relies on the classical definition of what is a geometric construction uh, versus one that it has to introduce new tools to accomplish this. Um, I would not know if... The, there is, is there, there is not so much disagreement between Leibniz and Gregory from this point of view, I would say, because they both, they both introduced new tools and they both convinced that you have to introduce new tools. This is the message of the impossibility results, I would say. So would you say that their disagreement is more over whether the proofs that they provide are themselves intrinsically geometric? No, I would say that they both agree that their proofs are not uh, geometric. Uh, Gregory is explicit in uh, recognizes that his own proof is algebraic. And he says something that for us may, may sound surprising. This is not good. If I have to give a proof, it should be geometric. The fact that it's algebraic means that my proof is not yet perfect. Um, whereas Leibniz does not comment explicitly on this, 
Fahad is proof is algebraic. He uses algebra. So in some sense, this relates to a sort of mathematical completeness, whether or not geometric questions can be answered using a fixed set of tools and some sort of value judgment on uh, the solutions that you can get. That's correct. That's correct. Um, I would say that the major disagreement is between Gregory and Huygens, and it is about the completeness. That is, um, so again, you have to consider the background of Cartesian geometry. So probably for people like Gregory Huygens, this was this was the background against which to measure their effort. And Huygens, this is pretty surprising, but it's I think quite evident from the sources. He tends to believe that um, this important problem, like the squaring of the circle, can be solved by the method given by Descartes. We don't know how, but uh, he says we, we don't know how. Of course, uh, we don't know how because it's impossible. But Huygens said we don't know how, but. Um, if we continue working along this direction, then we will find it. And if we continue working on the quarter of the circle, then we will get a lot of mathematical results uh, on the way, like as a sort of byproducts. So it's better, that's another argument of Huygens, it's better that we consider the problem of the squaring of the circle as a solvable problem because it brings riches, it, bring, it, it brings uh, along new mathematics. And uh, for Leibniz, there was a similar issue with the completeness of the Cartesian method. I think we can say completeness. It's a nice, it's a nice word that captures the point. And on this, uh, uh, Leibniz, I would say, aligns with, uh, with Gregory. So finally, Zooming out a bit from this specific controversy, um, our listeners are probably more familiar with stories about the development of calculus than with uh, these contemporaneous debates over the quadrature problems. For me, a non-historian, one takeaway from your book was that these developments were closely intertwined. Could you comment on the entanglement between these subjects at the time? Mm, yes. That's uh, uh, um, yes. This is something. Uh, one of the, oh, in my opinion, this is why impossibility results have a major role in the seventeenth-century mathematics and especially in relation with calculus. Uh, so the first point is that. What we is 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 about what we were talking before, that is the impossibility results prove that there are two major problems that are not in the purview of the known methods, that is the squaring of the circle and the squaring of the hyperbola. And for these reasons, we need um, more tools. We need uh, more. Um, let's say, sophisticated tools. And that was, uh, and that was what calculus would, um, would provide. Yeah. Calculus or pre-calculus tools would provide. And then there is another 
and another lesson that is impossibility results teaches and that both Gregory and Leibniz realized that these problems finding the area of this figure of finding the area of curvilinear figures more often than not uh, involve the necessary use of infinite series so there is an appeal to the infinite that somehow you cannot circumvent um, you have to take into you have to take it into account when you are solving the problem but uh, also when you are expanding the solution so this is not a this is a this is not a minor point especially in leibniz's uh, quadratural arithmetic so he realized that you have a classical problem that is squared in the circle and he realized that the best solution that he could give was not a solution that involved finite symbolic means, for example, an algebraic equation was not a solution that involved algebraic curves, was uh, the solution involved an infinite series. So it involved an object that uh, can be represented using a symbolism, uh, can be represented in a finite way if you know the law of the series, but to know the law is to express the law, and you can do this using a symbolism. But you cannot really represent the solution of this problem uh, geometrically in any satisfactory way. That is, you, you have this infinite series, you can use it as a recipe, maybe, to construct uh, bits of a square. You can use it as a recipe to approximate the area of the circle, but this is not... For Leibniz, this is not what it's meant to be. This is meant to be the solution to a geometrical problem, and the solution violates the classical canons of a solution. It is an infinite uh, uh, object that can be expressed using a symbolism. So this is also uh, why he refers to the arithmetical quadrature. So an arithmetical quadrature is not a geometrical one. It's, it's, it's it, it's it's a new type of solution. So I think that this is a lot related to the history of the calculus, because somehow the history of the calculus is also the history of um, the abandonment of the classical geometrical ideal of solving a problem and the embracing of a um, formal symbolic uh, method that would be the analysis in the 18th century and so on. I think that the roots uh, of this uh, long historical process are already in the impossibility results for the reason that I have said. I hope it was clear. That is a great way of summing that up. Thank you. Well, thank you too. So as we come towards a close, um, one question I'd like to ask is, whether there's a, another book or a piece of scholarship or media generally that you think makes a good companion to yours. Oh yes, on the uh, on the problems of impossibility and squaring the circle, there are uh, Jesper Lutzen's articles. He wrote two or three articles that appeared in the in the last few years. 
in Historia Mathematica in Centaurus, but these are scholarly journals, so maybe not everyone has access to it. I can uh, also mention a book. This is the last, uh, or the, the last book of Michel Serfati. It's called Leibniz and the Invention of Mathematical Transcendence. I said last because, unfortunately, uh, Michel Serfati was a scholar who passed away uh, recently, last year. And then on the topic of transcendental mathematics, so on Leibniz, there is uh, the book by Victor Blosio. It's called Transcendental Curves in the Leibnizian Calculus, and it appears in 2017. So they are recent, uh, recent pieces of scholarship. Thanks very much. So thanks very much. Um, to conclude with the traditional final question of the New Books Network, what are you working on now? And is another book project underway? I am working on a different topic. I'm working actually on the history of mathematics in the Czech lands, that is in Bohemia and in the Austrian Empire, in and around the time of Bernard de Bolzano. Uh, this is um, joint work. It is, uh, it's a um, it's a research that I'm doing with two other two other colleagues, Elias Fuentes Guillen and Jan Makowski. And so far, we are not planning to write a book, but only articles. So shorter things. Well, if you ever do put out another book, we hope you'll come back to the New Books Network to give an interview for it. Thank you very much. I would love to. The book is called The Impossibility of Squaring the Circle in the 17th Century. Davide Kripa, thank you very much for coming on the program. Thank you too for hosting me. Thanks again to Davide for discussing his book, and thank you for listening to this episode of New Books in Mathematics. For a link to Davide's book, and to browse hundreds of author interviews in the Mathematics and other New Book Network channels, go to www.newbooksnetwork.com.